0: Hello everyone, this is a bonus episode, or extra episode, to make up for the fact that I've missed a couple because I've been ill. We're going to look at false alarms, what happens when people hear the siren go off. It's just a mistake of course, it's a faulty wire or someone's pressed the wrong button. But of course you don't know that at the time, you don't know whether it's true or not. We're going to look at false alarms that have happened throughout the Cold War affecting ordinary people who are woken up in their beds in the middle of the night by the sirens or false alarms received by the military and the political elites which didn't ever filter through to us ordinary people but those at the top of the tree received signals saying incoming missiles, shall we retaliate? And it was all false, it was all a mistake but nonetheless these mistakes pushed us towards responding, towards retaliation, towards nuclear war. I'm a very nervous person, so I often lie awake at night and let my mind slip off into the horror of wondering what I'd do if I heard the air raid siren. And for some reason, I always imagine the four-minute warning happening during the day. In the film Threads, I believe the attack happens at 8.30am and the reason given in the film is that the Russians or the Soviets launched the attack at that point because at this point in the day, the US president will probably be asleep and, quote, this is when Western response will be slowest. But of course it could happen in the dead of night. Imagine that, being startled out of your warm bed at 3am by the sound of the end of the world. That's when Cormac McCarthy places his Armageddon in the road. His protagonist is woken during the night by the attack. Described as, I believe, a long sheer of green light, followed by a series of low concussions. His first response is to jump out of bed and start filling the bath with water. And his confused wife, startled awake during the night, asks, Why are you running a bath? And he says, I'm not. Of course he's not. We assume what he's doing is following the advice, or following common sense, which is, get as much fresh water as you can because quite soon the mains will be off uh, any water out in rivers will be poisoned gather as much fresh water as you can well you still can so the bomb at half eight in the morning or the bomb during the night what about the bomb during a bright sunny morning by the beach that's what the people of Hawaii had to face in January of 2018 of course it was a false alarm but not one the people could easily shrug off and forget about or dismiss as simply a bloody nuisance. Everyone knows the fright or annoyance experienced when the fire alarm or burglar alarm goes off by mistake or when a neighbour allows a car alarm to blare again and again and again. Or those who live next to secure hospitals will know the unsettling feeling when Broadmoor or Carstairs test their escape sirens. You might get a fright, you might get startled, you might get annoyed... But you got on with things. But for many in Hawaii, the false missile alert was traumatising and terrifying, coming during a period of international tension between America and North Korea. In this episode, we'll look at how people reacted to that alert in Hawaii, and then we'll go back to examine instances during the Cold War, and there were loads of them, when the sirens started to wail because of error, faulty wiring or malice. How did people react, and what did that tell us about the nuclear threat? This is The Atomic Hobo, and I'm Julie McDowell. Residents of Hawaii received text alerts at 8.07am on the 13th of January 2018, reading Emergency alert, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. And it took the officials an agonising 38 minutes to announce that it was a false alarm. So, what happened in those terrible 38 minutes? How did people respond? The Atlantic said that people across the state were terrified. Many assumed they would die, but they sought shelter anyway. They took cover in the bathrooms of malls, in their own bathtubs, in drugstores and even a storm drain. Hawaii has very few shelters and houses with basements are rare. There were reports of people speeding down highways and running red lights to reunite with family members. Others called one another to say I love you one last time. The Guardian reported how some people fled to a state park which has tsunami shelters. Others headed to underground car parks. Quote, for some, the prospect of the end of the world was an opportunity to indulge. Joshua Kyoke Versola was home alone in Mililani when he received the alert. As he waited for his fiancée to drive home from her place of work, the 35-year-old network engineer opened a bottle of Hibiki 21, an award-winning and expensive Japanese whiskey. "'I was about to start pouring drinks and go out in style,' Versola said. "'What are we going to do in this situation?' In this era of fake news, when I hear on Twitter that there's been a terrorist attack or some other dreadful atrocity, I go straight to the BBC, because only a fool would rely on tweets for their news. So I look to somewhere established and trusted and, dare I say it, old-fashioned, to confirm what Twitter is chattering about. But for the terrified people of Hawaii that day, their official news channels, we're reflecting what this text alert had said. The emergency alert system is designed, of course, to cut into radio and TV broadcasts. So those who hadn't received the alert by text, or those who perhaps thought, nah, that can't be real, then saw the alert flash up on their TV screens, reinforcing the official flavour of it. So the warnings were going out by mobile phone and cutting into broadcasts in everyone's living room. But there was no accompanying commentary or reporting. There was no politician delivering a broadcast saying this is real. One politician, to her credit, sent out a tweet saying it was a false alarm. But it was lost in the wave of panic. The response showed that people got their information from their smartphones. Either from the alert itself or by logging onto Twitter. And it was on Twitter where... The panic and the rumour were being thrown around, retweeted, and reinforced. Now, obviously, that wouldn't have happened in the Cold War, where we had no such technology. False alarms then would have come to us via TV, radio, or through the sirens wailing out in the streets. Given the level of official control over those three things it was far less likely that people would dismiss an alert coming from one of these avenues. And yet, nothing is completely foolproof, and there were plenty of incidents in the Cold War where sirens did start to wail, and people did just ignore it. Not everyone, of course. There are reports of other sirens blading which caused panic and fear, and there was a report of a false alarm in Devon, where the wailing of the sirens apparently caused some people to vomit in terror. So let's take a look at some of those stories. There was a very public false alarm in West Germany in June 1982. In Bonn, the capital of West Germany, President Reagan was giving a speech when the nuclear siren started now that's some stroke of bad luck isn't it but not quite as it had been done on purpose said the authorities by anti-nuclear activists trying to cause trouble if that's true then the activists were actually quite thoughtful as they triggered the all clear signal rather than the attack warning so that was quite nice of them So arguably that didn't cause panic, just annoyance and interruption and a political point. Reactions were different when a false alarm was triggered in London in 1958. The Times reported that a test was being carried out on the sirens in King George's Memorial Park in Wandsworth. And this had been highlighted in the local press and had been announced by loudspeaker vans patrolling the area. But of course... Not everyone knew. There will always be some people who don't get the message. And so, when the sirens raged, this was reported to have caused alarm to local residents. And we can assume that any alarm was exacerbated because in 1958, lots of people would be around who would have remembered those sirens from the war, who would have had direct memory of them, direct experience of them, and would associate them, of course, with a real attack, something imminent and vicious and lethal. It wasn't just something to be anticipated and dreaded, something you'd heard about from Frankie Goes to Hollywood or from films. It was something these people had already experienced and survived. So we can forgive people in 1958 for being absolutely terrified when a siren blared by accident. What about a few decades later in 1981? The Guardian said that in 1981, the villagers of Great Wakering in Essex were disturbed by a sudden blaring of their air raid siren. It went off for 40 minutes. But according to the newspaper, everyone just stayed in the pub. There was no panic, just a bit of boozing. The article was headlined, Regulars Ignore Last Orders. And it said, if Britain comes under nuclear attack, the residents of Great Wakering, Essex, will be found seeking protection behind glasses of beer at the White Hart pub. It was at the White Hart and its rival, the exhibition, that the villagers were found when, to all intents and purposes, they came under attack on Tuesday night. We are not easily frightened in Great Wakering, said parish councillor Mr Edwin Adcock, who, like the rest of the village, listened to a nuclear warning siren for 40 minutes, without taking action. If it had been the real thing, some of them here would have said a quick prayer, but the others would just have had a pint in the pub. So they weren't too bothered in 1981 in Essex, especially if the White Hart was open and you had a glass of beer in hand. It was a different story in Devon in 1986, when again a false nuclear siren was triggered, and the Guardian letters page talking about the incident said that some people were physically sick in terror. However, the letter makes clear that this happened just a couple of months after Chernobyl. So perhaps fear of disaster and fallout were particularly strong. It doesn't mean they're not as tough as the boozers at Great Wakering. So these are some examples of false alarms which reached the public, mainly through technical glitches or someone having a bit of a laugh but what about the false alarms which we didn't know about the ones happening behind the scenes involving government officials there were times and there probably will be again when a false alarm is triggered and politicians and military elites look at their screens and think my god this is it Missiles are incoming, this is it And then, mercifully, they realise it's an error. Those hidden false alarms, which don't reach the public, are far more terrifying as they're being received and responded to by the men who have access to the so-called nuclear button. The most famous one concerns Stanislav Petrov, and it happened in 1983. One of the Cold War's most terrifying peaks, of course. Petrov was an officer in the Soviet Air Force, I was in charge of one of their missile early warning systems one night, when, suddenly, the screens lit up, saying the Americans had launched an attack. However, Petrov noticed they had, according to the computer, only launched one missile. He considered it to be a false alarm, because surely there was no point in the Americans launching one. If they were going to strike they would need to launch an all-out attack in the hope of knocking out or disabling the Soviet Union's ability to respond. So there would be no point, it would be suicidal, to launch one single missile. So he considered it to be a false alarm. There would be no response, there would be no retaliation, there would be no alerting the, the officials higher above him. Even though that meant defying protocol, which wasn't easily done, I'm sure, in the Soviet Union. So he opted to do nothing, considering it was a false alarm. Everyone relaxed. But then the screens lit up again. More incoming missiles. But this time it was only four that were incoming. Again, he thought it doesn't make sense. If the Americans were going to do this, they would do it hugely. They would do it bigly. They would not send five missiles. So again, even though the sweat must have been streaming off his brow, he said, No, this must be a false alarm. And by doing nothing, he chose not to escalate the matter and thereby chose not to send us spiralling into possible retaliation and therefore nuclear holocaust. He was a hero. It was later revealed that the Soviet early warning system had misinterpreted sunlight on clouds as a missile attack. There is a documentary about him and this incredible story called The Man Who Saved the World. It was uh, on Netflix last time I checked. I don't know if it's still there, but it's worth trying to get a copy if you can. Now let's look at a false alarm from the American side. This one occurred in June 1980. The US early warning system, as the Soviet one did, detected an incoming attack. As far as they were concerned, this was it, nuclear war was on the way. We've got minutes to decide what to do. Everything went to readiness, pilots ran to their planes, officers in the missile silos extracted the launch keys from the safe, and the Federal Aviation Authority got ready to order every commercial airliner down out of the sky. All that remained was to go to the president and say, What are your orders, sir? Jimmy Carter was a president, thankfully, some might say. But this was happening at the dead of night and he was fast asleep. So the protocol was to ring his national security advisor and relay the information to him and get him to wake the president and seek instruction. The advisor was Zbigniew Brzezinski. I hope I'm pronouncing his name properly. And he was woken by his military aide, General William Odom, who told him, 220 Soviet missiles are on their way. Brzezinski told him, get confirmation. The aide called back and delivered confirmation. Yes, sir, this is it. This is real. Here's a quote from The New Yorker about what happened next. Brzezinski decided not to wake up his wife, preferring that she die in her sleep. As he prepared to call Carter and recommend an American counterattack, the phone rang for a third time. Odom apologised. It was a false alarm. An investigation later found that a defective computer chip in a communications device at NORAD headquarters had generated the erroneous warning. The chip cost 46 cents. That's from an article by the great Eric Schlosser. You can find it on the New Yorker website. Just search for World War III by mistake. So what do these false alarms tell us? Well, in the higher echelons, when it involves the early warning systems and strict protocol, It tells us how utterly fragile and vulnerable and also how utterly lucky we are. A cheap old computer chip or a fluffy cloud can tip us to the brink of nuclear war. And it's only cool and calm heads and luck, always luck, that has saved us so far. This is why it does not do to have politicians who are impulsive and unpredictable. Although I promised, promised I would not get political and I won't, it's simply a fact that it does not do in situations like that to have an impulsive, unpredictable person in charge. And when the false alarm goes directly to the public as a result of a simple faulty wire triggering a local siren stuck on the top of a lamppost, the response is rarely, okay everyone, take cover. Duck into your fallout shelter under the stairs, where your rations and your first aid kits and your body bags have safely been stored. No, the reactions vary, according to stories we've seen, from indifference, to disbelief, to confusion, to having a beer, to vomiting in terror. None of which are what the authorities would have wanted us to do in a real attack scenario. They would want us obediently taking cover, getting off the streets, getting off the roads, staying out of the way, not running around panicking and screaming and boozing. All of this seems to prove that you cannot prepare for nuclear war. The only solution is not to have one. And if anyone knows how to do that, please let me know. I've switched my podcast hosting from SoundCloud to Libsyn, but this shouldn't affect you at all if there is a problem let me know and I'll fix it but you shouldn't experience any change I'm just putting it out there in case there is something. If there is uh, let me know, get me through Twitter at Julie a. McDowell or through my website juliemcdowell.com or you can find me on Facebook at Nuclear Britain. Let me thank everyone for listening, uh, for leaving reviews on iTunes and for retweeting very grateful for the support especially given that I've been ill and feeling a bit <laughs> battered and weak recently um, I'm especially grateful to those who support the podcast and my nuclear work through Patreon if you want to sign up please take a look at patreon.com forward slash hobo. or if you want to make a one off donation to the podcast and my research costs you can do so through PayPal by going to paypal.me forward slash hobo. Those who are signed up at the upper levels of my Patreon should have received some nuclear gifts in the post. Uh, protect and survive chocolates and fridge magnets or civil defence pamphlets and bookmarks, etc. Hope they were all safely received. And it was a pleasure to be able to send those out to people and to say thank you for supporting my work. So thanks to all my patrons and a special shout out to Ben Taylor who signed up about five minutes ago as I was recording this podcast. Thanks also to Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Dan Breen, Gary Watson, everybody, Erika, Lucy Stegerwald, Jonathan Abelins, Simon Robinson, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damien Ryan, Peter Lee. Rosie Jamieson, Andrew Key, Ian Elkin, Lorraine Gluick, Bruce Fraser Armstrong, Eamon Coyle, Julie Eek, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reed, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Wilnough, Kevin Butter, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling Steve Sace Claire Brennan Paul Jonathan Viner and Gordy McNair that is a huge list I'm so grateful to everyone the podcast quite honestly couldn't happen without the support I do appreciate it I do see all of your names here and I'm so grateful so this was a bonus episode as you know the the podcast normally goes out on Sundays Uh, so this is a little extra but I will be back on Sunday so this is Thursday I'll be back on Sunday with another. Thank you all for listening.